It's Monday, August 8th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, joining me in studio today from Stock Advisor Canada, Taylor Muckerman, and for Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. Happy Monday, gents. Hey, you as well. The Summer Olympics are underway, but we're actually going to start with a winter sport in a moment. Uh, we'll also get to the big deal in retail and we'll dip into the full mailbag. But let's, uh, let's talk skiing because it is very much in the business news. Vale Resorts. Is buying Whistler Blackcomb Holdings in a cash and stock deal worth just over a billion dollars. Uh, Whistler Blackcomb is the biggest ski area in Canada, and actually was the, I believe it was the, home for the Vancouver Olympics yes, in it was. 2010. Mm-hmm. The the, a lot of the skiing events were there. Um, Wall Street seems to like this deal, Taylor. Do you? Ah, uh, yes, I do. Um, covering the Canadian market. I actually pitched Whistler Blackcomb a few months ago to, to be on our scorecard. Um, but it's a, it was an expensive stock. I mean, the, over 30 PE, um, but Vale's at 40 right now. Um, so, buying a somewhat cheaper competitor. Um, but Whistler Blackcomb is actually the largest ski resort in North America and uh, at over 8,300 um, acres, which is Almost three thousand acres more than Vale actually has. So, um, but just Vale proper, not Vale all of their resorts combined, because they bought um, Park City and Canyons in Utah and combined them, um, which are now the largest in the United States um, at over seven thousand square square acres. So, they're dealing with a lot of property here, and I think it's a great move because Whistler Blackcomb has been concentrating a lot more on non-winter sports. It's been growing about eight percent per year since two thousand eight, but earlier this winter. They had announced some grand plans to really ramp up spending on mountain biking trails, uh, indoor water parks, uh, ATVs, smaller roller coasters to bring people there during the summer, spring, and fall, especially in the winter. And uh, season pass sales for both companies have been tremendous the last few years, probably having a lot to do with the very favorable winters that they've had, which is another reason why we kind of passed on Whistler Blackcomb, because since they went public, there hasn't been a bad winter. So, we didn't know how the stock might react to a, a winter like that, but stock's up 43% today. So, somebody likes it. Yeah, I like the idea that Vale is uh, working on things other than like mm-hmm. winter sports, yeah. right? I mean, and I think if I remember correctly, they were getting some incentives either at the local level or the federal level. I, I believe it was the federal level uh, to build that stuff out. Mm-hmm. And and I mean, when you consider I mean, those, those, you can't really replicate the territory, right? right? No, I mean, the topography there is very unique. And so, to see that they're going to go ahead and try to leverage that out beyond skiing uh, into, into other sorts of enjoyable activities. And I think those are activities that really span uh, people of all ages and people of all walks, right? We we talked a little bit about golf last week, for example, with the the idea that um, Nike we're getting see Nike of, getting out of the equipment game, yeah. and you know, golf I think is is one that has been facing a lot of headwinds just by the nature of the game, in that it's so difficult to learn, and unless you start it as a child, when you start it as an adult, you typically don't have the patience to really deal with it. Versus something like what Vale does, mm-hmm. which is really not only just skiing, but all of these other sports and activities combined, that you you could kind of pick them up really at whatever stage of life you want. Yeah, absolutely, and, and they're not nearly as frustrating or as difficult as something like golf is. And Whistler has been amplifying its efforts to bring in a younger demographic with some. Uh, they're building out a massive school for skiing. Um, it'll probably be open next sometime next year. Uh, so they're trying to attract that. They have eight million people within a five-hour drive. So almost sixty percent of the folks that ski at Whistler are local. Um, but they have Vancouver, like you mentioned, uh, is only a couple hours away. International airport. So 
great access. And when you look at the western coast of Canada, uh, Canada um, Jumbo Wild is a pretty popular topic out there, and it's a ski resort that's been trying to be built for over a decade now. It's turned into a, a very big competition between the locals there and the gentlemen that started drumming up money to build this, and so there's very little room for competition because you have to get approval for all this. Like I said, this has been going on for a decade, and they haven't even broken ground yet, so um, very, wow, very big moat. Yeah, very big <laughs> moat for, for Whistler Blackcomb, and um, you had seen Vail on the acquisition trail the last couple of years, as I mentioned, the resorts in Utah, but also um, in the middle of the United States. They're trying to attract people from Chicago and some bigger cities in the Midwest, and so then they can combine those season passes with the season passes in, at Vail or Breckenridge or their other properties to try and encourage people to come out west along with making money off of them near Chicago. Quick thing on Vail mm-hmm. stock, which is up this morning hitting a new high. You had said earlier it's already a pretty expensive stock. Yeah. It's now even slightly more expensive. If you're looking at this stock, do you think, all right, I'm, it's on my watch list, but I'm going to wait for a bad quarter and a pullback, or do, or is this one where, you know, like we've talked about with other companies, uh, it's it perennially looks expensive. Uh, so far, it has throughout its throughout the last few years. Um, but you see all their resorts spending a lot of money. They have great cash flow, pay a little bit of a dividend. So it's certainly something that I wouldn't cast off, even though it is up seven percent today on the news of them buying a company, um, which I haven't seen lately, where the acquirer is up almost ten percent. But uh, I would I would definitely keep it on my watch list. I wouldn't be a buyer yet today, but um, it's an exciting company, and especially with this purchase, because I liked Whistler Blackcomb a lot. All right, the retail deal that's been rumored for the past week or so is now official. Walmart is buying online retailer Jet.com in a cash and stock deal worth $3.3 billion. Most of that is cash, Jason. I guess if you can't build online growth fast enough, you just buy it. Or at least you try to, right? <laughs> I mean, I think that's what this is, at least the attempt from Walmart. And I don't begrudge the business, the company, for doing this. Um, but yeah, and and this may seem a little bit out there. I mean, I I really do think Walmart may very well just be the Sears of the millennial generation, and that is not a compliment, Chris. Yikes. I mean, is, uh, I mean, we've seen Sears really just is sort of a slow moving train wreck, so to speak. And and I I think at some point we may very well run into investors making the the Walmart argument, the, the thesis based on real estate, much like we saw with Sears. And I think that'll be the surefire sign of the beginning of the end. That's a red flag. That is, that is that is a big red flag, honestly, because yeah, for for many reasons we won't get into here. But I think um, again, I I don't begrudge Walmart doing this, but I also think that so much time has passed that I I don't know that there's anything that Walmart actually can do in this case to to catch up. With Amazon, I mean, I think that what Amazon. I mean, if we look back now and we see all of these these investments that Jeff Bezos so recklessly made over these past ten years that everybody was complaining about. It doesn't seem so stupid now, does it? I mean, it was plain to see that he he at least had some somewhat of a vision into where commerce was going in in building out this infrastructure um, has has been uh, hugely important to the growth of the business. And I and I think that there may be a time ago. Where for for most people at least, where being the lowest cost provider held some sway. I mean, having just the rock bottom lowest prices at one point or another was the biggest deal. I don't think that's the biggest deal now, uh, and I think that 
Amazon has done a good job of exploiting that. I mean, Amazon gives very competitive pricing. It's not always necessarily the lowest price, um, but they have really not only focused on the price side of the equation, but the convenience side of the equation, right? And um, and I think that while anybody can get into the e-commerce space, I mean, all you have to do is just right start a website basically and, and try. But I mean, the logistics behind it are far more difficult, and and I think that we saw all of that play out with Amazon over this past decade, and sort of the quarter in, quarter out, unprofitable. Where's the money? What's going on here? And and lo and behold, now not only do you have a business that is really built out a phenomenal retail footprint, uh, they've built out a phenomenal technology footprint. I think they're building out a pretty darn impressive device footprint as well. And you, you top all of that off with a company, a business that just oozes customer loyalty, whereas something like Walmart, I think, has zero customer loyalty. And and I think that if you look at Walmart's uh, income statement today, I mean, it's it's let's be clear, man. I mean, Walmart does four times the revenue that Amazon does, but when you look at them side by side, one is growing and one is literally not. One did. Thirteen billion, maybe in online revenue, <laughs> yeah. and one did a hundred. Is about on track to do a hundred billion this yeah. year. Yeah, and so I mean, I, I again, I don't begrudge Walmart for trying this. Um, I think really the biggest winner here is Mark Lorry, the guy that founded Jet.com, because he's going to you know, rake in the cash and be able to kind of try to run this business. I mean, he basically got instant funding for a business that was going to have a hard time raising um, any money here in the coming year. In the first and they're place. keeping it separate. They're keeping the yeah. brand separate. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think it's it's. It's something Walmart has to do, yeah. and and this probably is the best way to do it. At least with Lori, you've got a guy who knows e-commerce to some extent. Uh, he founded Diapers.com. He sold it to Amazon. Yeah, sold it for to Amazon. Five hundred fifty million dollars. So you know, wash, rinse, repeat, and, <laughs> and um, and that that's where we are today. It is a pretty smart move, though. I mean, uh, it, it's it's one of those things that when you look at it on paper, it seems obvious. They've got the cash. Um, Walmart's got about sixty billion in, in cash mm-hmm. and short-term assets. Again, most of the deal is cash. Now, of course, now that they've made this deal, the the hard part comes yep. because, in some ways, this is the obvious move. But then there's the integration, um, and there's actually driving the online sales. Which I think, if you are an analyst covering Walmart closely, it's reasonable to start asking the question. Great. This has happened. When, when do you expect it to be fully integrated? When do you expect it to start showing significant growth? Because while Walmart has has shown some growth in online commerce, seven percent, I think, was last right. Year. Yeah, I mean, that's not going to cut it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you, this is an obvious move. Good for them. If a year from now we're looking at their online growth in any given quarter as being in single digits. Then it's fair to ask, what in God's name are you doing wrong? Agreed. Yeah, and I don't think, I mean, Walmart doesn't have this, the executive office isn't overflowing with tech proficiency, right? I mean, this isn't what they built that business on. I mean, this is very much, to my mind, the way I simplify this, and, and I'm a simpleton, man, I mean, I got to do this kind of stuff. It's, it's the Flintstones versus the Jetsons. And I'll give you a guess as to who the Flintstones are in this case. It's not Amazon. Probably the company that tried to get exclusive CD distribution rights a few years ago. Whereas Amazon has exclusive rights to online 
television and movies. Yeah, and, and you music. Know, and, and this isn't to say that this won't succeed. It very well may. I, I, I really honestly hope it does because I think that makes the e-commerce space and retail generally for consumers better. Um, yeah, but maybe I also, it makes Amazon a better company because then they sense it as a threat and they right. have to make some changes. And I mean, you have to remember, Jeff Bezos wakes up every morning, essentially, and he's, he's said this many, many times. He basically wakes up with a mindset every day of feeling the threat of disruption on some front. And so, that's his mentality day in and day out. And the other thing I would also do is just don't make the leap that just because it's Walmart making this acquisition, and it's so big, and it's done so much in the past, okay, let's remember, all of its success is to date, let's think forward. Just because this is Walmart doesn't mean that it will automatically work out. Okay, I mean, remember, Coca-Cola dropped the pretty coin on Keurig Green Mountain for that cold machine, and that didn't work out so well. I, th- I thought so, you were going to go back to when they bought the movie studio, when they bought Columbia <laughs> well, Pictures. That too. I mean, <laughs> history is riddled with examples, and I think we just have to sort of take it all with a grain of salt. Marketfoolery at fool.com is our email address uh, from Owen Benelak, who's uh, one of our writers in the UK. And by the way, Check out our UK site, fool.co.uk. But Owen dropped a note uh, in reference to the conversation we had last week about the first company to $10 trillion worth of market cap. He writes, I'm not surprised that the tech boys, referring to David Kretschmann and Aaron (laughs) Bush, went for Alphabet and Amazon. However, when you look at the long history of tech disruption, I think they are a riskier bet than they look. I think this question has an easier answer. Berkshire Hathaway. It's currently $357 billion in market cap. Assume merely a roughly historical S&P 500 rate of total return of 10%, and it gets to $1 trillion in 11 years. Surely not the fastest, but perhaps among the surest. Even better, compound at that market rate, and you get to $10 trillion in just 35 years, with five years to spare. Uh, which Let's touch on Berkshire Hathaway for a second. They, as they do, very quietly on Friday afternoon after the market closed, reported their latest quarter. Second quarter profits were up 25%. Um, the acquisitions of Duracell and Precision Cast Parts starting to pay off. Um, I don't think Owen's off base with that, by the way. I mean, I do think if you're making up the short list of who gets there, that's, that's not a bad bet. No, I mean, Obviously, you're going to lose Warren Buffett before 35 years is right. up. So that's a question mark. We we don't wish one. ill on no. Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't think it's unreasonable to think that 35 years from now they're no longer with us. Yeah, you're dealing with a little bit younger CEOs than the other two companies. Personally, I would probably hitch my wagon to either Alphabet or Amazon. Um, could it be safer bet with Berkshire? Yes. I, this might be sacrilegious as an investor, but I'm not uber familiar with Berkshire, so I don't really feel comfortable saying. Comparing the two, um, but um, it's a reasonable bet given its historic growth for a much longer period than Alphabet or Amazon. Well, particularly if if you look at to go back to what you were saying, Jason, about Mark Laurie at Jet.com, and you look at how Buffett and Munger have managed the business of Berkshire Hathaway beyond the acquisitions themselves, and and finding great managers and letting them do their thing. You know, it's uh, if if whoever takes the helm after Buffett is gone keeps that up, then that's that is a great blueprint that is uh, repeatable. Yeah, I definitely think it is. I think it's something that when we look forward ten years, twenty years, however many years, I think history is always going to look back at Berkshire Hathaway and say that one of the the long lasting effects that Warren and Charlie left 
uh, was that blueprint, like you said, a great way to sort of manage a company when it gets really big. And I think we're already seeing some of these big tech players uh, start kind of copying that model to an extent. Alphabet, obviously. Uh, I, I think we're seeing more and more of that kind of style with something like Amazon. I think the point about tech and disruption is is well taken, but I also think that when you get to be a tech company that size, whenever you see something that's potentially disruptive, you're so big that you can basically just go out there and buy it. Yeah. And that's what most of these guys are going to do. And in most cases, these little tech startups that prove to be kind of disruptors are going to are going to take the bait because it it typically is instant funding and an opportunity to kind of grow that vision out. And and I think you look at Facebook for example, they did sort of the same thing with Instagram, right? Instagram is still basically its own entity within Facebook, and they're kind of able to do their own thing. Um, I, I for me, like I, I think for Berkshire Hathaway, they probably have to be a little bit more forward looking in order for this to happen. Uh, I mean, tech hasn't always been their strong suit, and I think that tech is proving to be really the shaping force of our lives and economy in the, in the coming years. And so, for Berkshire to be able to to be in this same boat, I think they need to probably be a little bit more forward thinking in that capacity. And I, and I would also argue the ten percent uh, rate there. I think if you go back to 1985, I was talking with Robert Brokamp uh, earlier, our our retirement guru here with Really Retirement. And I think since 1995, the Vanguard 500 has actually grown, compounded at about five and a half, six percent annualized rate. So I think 10 percent probably is a bit optimistic. I Maybe it's not, yeah. but I mean, I wouldn't use it. So I think from that perspective, that obviously lengthens the timeline there. And and I mean, let's be clear, I'm a Berkshire shareholder still, and I love owning those shares, and I have no intention of getting rid of them. I I wouldn't put this one at the top of my list though as far as as far as getting there first. Yeah, and when you talk about disruption, you look at Facebook and the Instagram example. People thought Snapchat might disrupt Instagram. What did yeah. Instagram do? They just basically replicated it, and now it's part of their app. And I don't think that Snapchat's really that formidable of a, of a comparison now. And when you get those networks, I mean, those networks are really powerful. And and again, I mean, it's not just. Facebook. I mean, Google serves a tremendous purpose, you know, and it's a it's a utility that I think we all use daily. I think Amazon is another one of those businesses that is beyond e-commerce, just a phenomenal, phenomenal business with with great leadership too. And I, and I think that's the key there is that Berkshire Hathaway has been successful because of astute leadership. And and I think that a lot of these businesses that will continue to be successful in, in the years to come, the big time winners are going to be. Uh, Mostly due to very astute and forward-looking leaders. Before we wrap up, uh, last week on our Industry Focus podcast, it was Pop Culture Week. Uh, Taylor, you and and Sean O'Reilly talking energy about uh, yeah. oil barons, right? Yeah, about how they're usually cast as very evil uh, <laughs> monsters in most film, cartoons, and books. Yes, uh, uh, Dylan Lewis asked me to join him on Friday on the Tech Edition of Industry Focus, and we talked about Silicon Valley. The fabulous show on fabulous HBO. Show. I started watching it because of you two. Ah, uh, yeah, no, I just finished done. it last week. So here's <laughs> so here's the one thing I I didn't think of this until more than a day after we taped the episode. I realized I the, the one thing that I wanted to mention on that podcast that I forgot to is the opening sequence. The opening credits of Silicon Valley last maybe ten seconds long, but it's a a uh, it's like imagine a camera panning over. Uh, Silicon Valley, and it shows all these different company logos and and animation, that sort of thing. And the thing that struck me is that in the three seasons they've done that show, 
the logos have changed. They have. Yeah. As, yeah. as some companies have risen, their logos get bigger. <laughs> yeah. As other companies have fallen by the wayside, they get smaller, that sort of thing. The first one I noticed was the Lyft hot air balloon yes. bumping into the Uber hot air balloon. Yes. And, A little uh, bit smaller. And Tesla Motors yeah. popping up <laughs> recently. Um, the Yahoo logo, which is very noticeable because it's a bright mm-hmm. purple, has gotten smaller over the last <laughs> year. Perhaps this coming season we'll see a Solar City uh, logo a bit more. Could be. Um, uh, I need to talk to you guys after the show. I'm, I'm headed to Asheville, North Carolina later this week, so I need, I'm looking for recommendations. Okay. Hey, um, and then, uh, Jason, you have a birthday shout-out? Well, sure. I mean, some of the shaping forces in our world today, all the way back to 1980 or so, Robin Quivers. On the the know, great Stern's partner Robin in crime Quivers. there. She... Uh, the asking how many years she is, is is the wrong question. Just happy birthday, Robin. Happy birthday. All right, Jason Moser, Taylor Muckerman. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks. Appreciate it. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.